When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. This is Action and Ambition, the show that takes you all over the world to share interviews with the most successful and relevant people on the planet. Hear their backstory, get the most important lessons they've learned on their road to success, and hear exclusive tips on how to implement their success in your own life. Action and Ambition is brought to you by Entrepreneur Magazine and your host, Andrew Metal. Welcome to the Action and Ambition Podcast. I'm your host today, Chase Geyser, and with us, we have a very special guest. Wendy Short-Barty plays a strategic role in driving enterprise initiatives at Bristol Myers Squibb. Wendy has more than 20 years experience in the pharmaceutical industry with a history of leading teams to achieve global commercial excellence in a range of commercial roles with increasing responsibility in sales, business analytics, and marketing. Wendy, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Action and Ambition Podcast. How are you today? Hey, Chase. Thanks for having me. I'm great. Absolutely. So where does this uh, story begin for you? Have you always been in the pharmaceutical business? I have not. So this story all begins with me. Actually, I'm on the south side of Chicago. My mom was a a great school teacher for her entire career. And my dad worked in transportation and he had his own small business. And from my mom, I developed a desire for a career that helped people. From my dad, I learned the value of a really strong work ethic and the importance of really transparent communication. Now, that's corporate speak. He called it telling it like it is. Uh, and so as a result of that, I ended up going to law school. I'm a lawyer by training. And after I finished law school, I became a public defender, um, first in Washington, D.C. for the public defender service. And then I moved to the Boogie Down Bronx and practiced there. And then I made a decision to make a career change. And this was in the early 2000s and decided to explore the pharmaceutical industry, believing, quite frankly, that if I didn't like it, I could always and would return to the practice of law. But that hasn't happened because I love this industry. I love the mission and the fact that every day I get to take an action and do some work that ultimately helps people live. Wow. So why did you choose the pharmaceutical of all things that you could have chosen to do as an alternative? You know, when I was making the choice to to switch careers, I knew how to do two things. I knew how to try cases and bartend because up until that point, that's pretty much what I spent my time doing. But I had a number of friends that were in the pharmaceutical industry. And in the early 2000s, the industry was booming. There was um, substantial expansion across um, the sector. And that really is what drove the decision. I saw it around me. I saw friends who had a good career and thought I would try it out. And, you know, part of what I liked about it is the idea that, again, it went back to this, this notion that in some way I could take a decision to, t- to take a career that would allow me to help people. Mm, absolutely. So what was the first thing that you did to sort of break into the industry? Well, ironically enough, to break into the industry, I thought, let's start with sales. And so I picked up a paper. This was back in the day when there was a such thing as picking up the paper and going to um, the job section and saw that a company called Abbott Laboratories was hiring. And so I literally showed up at their career fair and spoke to one of their regional business directors about a role in sales. 
And he looked at me and said, why would I hire you to be a sales professional? You have no sales background. And I explained to him that I spent my professional career defending people charged with crimes in front of judges and juries. And if I could do that, I could be in sales. And he hired me. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, as a public defender, it's one of the hardest things ever to convince some of those defendants, I imagine, uh, to, to convince a judge that they're innocent or, or to negotiate. So, so I'm sure that you had all the skills to, to do very well in sales. I did. And, and I think what you ultimately realized, it's funny, I, I watch people and I, I mentor um, young adults who are trying to determine what they want to do with their careers. And oftentimes those discussions start with people talking about a job. That they want. And I've actually started trying to encourage people to not talk about the job, but to think about skills and kind of what they're good at and where they excel. And what you find is that when you kind of pivot your focus to that, your 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 view of the world and your view of potential becomes quite quite broad because you realize that you know skills are transferable and you can do so many things, quite frankly, many, many more things that you probably think you can't. Yeah, absolutely. So what was it like for you then breaking into the sales side of things? Well, I'm just very curious of what your first 90 days looked like. Were you just cold calling or, or what is the process? I know very little about pharmaceutical sales. Well, the process is a little bit more structured than that. You know, the, the industry understands um, where their customers are. So I didn't have to cold call, but I did have to go out and visit doctors and share with them information about the products and help them understand how my products could fit into their treatment regimens for their patients. And again, in some respects, it was a fulfilling job. I had a lot of flexibility um, to go out and to meet customers. I was in New York City and in some of the boroughs. So I got to go into very diverse neighborhoods and I experienced different doctors and different patients. That's the beautiful part. There were a lot of days when the doors were shut in my face or when the doors just didn't open at all. That mm -hmm. was the humbling part where I learned some more humility. Um, but again, the, the mission was clear. And so I enjoyed the work. And ultimately, um, I was in sales for a few years and then decided to go into a headquarters job, first in business analytics, and then ultimately in marketing. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the, the new position and what was different from, from sales in terms of what your actual role was. Well, I think the, the biggest difference between from a sales role into, an into a headquarter role is I went from actually being in front of customers, talking about products to doing the analytics to understand behaviors and to actually prepare marketing teams to take drugs to market. And so it was a very different uh, part of the business, all still tied to the commercial function, but a very different optic. In this role, it was more of a support function to help our marketing organization understand drivers of behavior, barriers to behavior, sales performance, um, where we needed to focus and where we could potentially stop focusing. Um, and then the marketing is actually building marketing plans to go to market. So that was the materials and all of the strategies that ultimately were delivered to our sales organization um, to use in front of their customers. And I stayed in the marketing, uh, in the marketing field for a number of years, loved it, loved the work, and found my true calling when I was able to join um, the oncology uh, sector of a company. Um, I, I switched from primary care marketing to oncology marketing right around the time that my mother and my father were both diagnosed with cancer. My mother's I'm a two-time so breast cancer. No, thank you. I, I appreciate your, your sentiment. Um, despite, despite battling breast cancer twice, my mom is still with me. Um, and my dad, I unfortunately lost to prostate cancer, but 
that was the time of my life when my work became so personal. And I realized how important um, the impact that the pharmaceutical industry can have in really, really transforming outcomes for people who have serious disease. So tell me a little bit about that specifically, because obviously the, the, the pharmaceutical companies, especially in oncology, I imagine, aren't going directly to the consumer uh, in order to uh, move product and make an impact, right? There's sort of a, a middleman that is the oncologist or the hematologist or, or whoever, is that right? We spend the majority of our time with oncologists and hematologists in the oncology space, yes, but we also spend time with payers. We spend time with advocacy groups, with mid-level practitioners. Um, you know, the, the care of oncology is not just a physician-patient relationship anymore. You have to work with nurses, nurse navigators, social workers, advocacy, advocacy communities. And now some companies actually do spend um, a lot of effort in educating patients themselves. I think it's fair to say that patients are far more informed as our general consumers now because of the explosion of available information online. And we know that when people are diagnosed with serious conditions, the first thing they do is they go online to learn. And so being able to provide education directly to patients is something that we do as well. That makes a lot of sense. So you've been in the business for, for quite some time now, and I know that Culturally speaking, there there have been a lot of changes in terms of the the pharmaceutical industry. We've sort of been through uh, an opioid crisis, and regulations have changed, and, and, and health insurance has changed. So I'm curious to ask you, um, what has it been like as a professional in the space to adapt and navigate throughout the different chapters of that this industry's gone through? That's a great question, Chase. I, look, I think. Much like many industries, certainly the pharmaceutical sector has seen change. I think in general, it's a fair statement to say that the business environment is complex, it's dynamic, things are changing rapidly. Um, and I think that even when we look externally now at, you know, um, inflation, we often talk about recession. You know, we talk about geopolitical instability. These are all factors that are impacting many businesses right now. but. What I find um, is that the one thing that has not changed is our commitment to patients. And I believe that as long as we stay focused on innovation and ultimately developing innovation that can be used in areas of very high unmet need, and we keep the focus on the patient at the center of everything we do, external factors will certainly impact our business model, but we'll still be successful because the true north is there and focuses on the right things. I think if you look over the last couple of decades, I think the innovation that we've seen from the pharmaceutical uh, industry has really been explosive. And we've seen advances made that I, I think some people did not think that they would see in their lifetimes. And I'm a firm believer that we're gonna continue to see outstanding innovation from the pharmaceutical um, industry. And so that is what we remain focused on, is how do we bring innovation in the areas of highest unmet need rapidly so that people can benefit from that. Mm, that makes sense. So tell me a little bit about where the marketing meets the product development aspect. It, this is such a fascinating industry because obviously in order to create pharmaceuticals, there, there are a lot of different variables and moving components and, and stages. And, and there's a high degree of expertise. You have to have scientists and chemists. And so what is it like for you in your position when talking with 
the team or those extensions uh, of the company about what product needs there are in the space? Well, I think that, you know, in, at BMS, certainly, and I think it's quite frankly across the industry, um, there, are, there are a ton of really, really smart, very mm-hmm. passionate and committed people who, who do this work. And what I have found um, is that in very early stage development, and I, I think of that as kind of the incubation area of where we've got world-class scientists that are um, investigating molecules that are very, very early. It's in the nascent phase of their development to see if there's a signal. And once you kind of see if there's a signal, that work tends to transfer to later stage development. And these are the scientists that are actually designing clinical trials in humans to ultimately determine whether or not products can be approved um, for patients. And once a product moves into that later stage development, that's where you start to see a lot of collaboration, communication, and synergies with the commercial organization and our regulatory colleagues, because it's not just developing science, it's understanding the regulatory path for drug approval. It's also understanding intimately what the unmet needs are. What does the competitive landscape look like? What do our customers think the highest um, unmet need is? How do you bring a drug to market that is highly effective for patients, but doesn't cause side effects that interfere with their quality of life? How do you make sure that you provide the education to patients that they can become advocates in their own care so that they can drive the best outcomes for themselves? And that's where your commercial colleagues meet in the middle with clinical development and regulatory and other stakeholders in the company to develop a strategy that will ultimately bring products to market. So what is something that you would say that you know now that you wish you knew when you started in this industry? One thing I wish that I had known when I started in the industry that I know now is um, the deep commitment that the scientists and everybody in this industry has to really transforming patients' lives. I knew what my focus was, and I knew why I wanted to enter into the industry. What I've since learned is that that is the shared commitment across the industry. And I actually wish that we would do more to help the public understand how deeply committed we are to the work that we do. Mm, fascinating. So what are you working on right now? What are your goals for, for your role by 2025? Oh, that's a great question. So um, right now, my current job is I serve on um, our CEO, I, on the CEO's leadership team as the CEO chief of staff. And in this role, I support um, our CEO, Giovanni Ficorio, by leading the leadership and team effectiveness work for the C-suite. I advise on enterprise-focused strategic initiatives. I lead the work around organizational continuous improvement, and I collaborate with the executive team members to determine and prioritize our business strategies. And so, you know, what I'm working on between now and 2025 is making sure that we continue to advance our new product launches um, to ensure that they're successful. I'm working on making sure that as an organization, we're working across teams effectively with each other. Um, I also think that we will see the pharmaceutical industry evolve over the next couple of years to make sure that we can get products to patients faster to meet their needs. Um, And then I also am really focused on culture and the people in our organization, making sure that people are happy here and that they have a sense of belonging at BMS and that they can achieve their career goals. We're also a company that is very, very focused on health equity and addressing health disparities that exist, not just in the US, but globally. And we've made some pretty, um, we've made public and pretty ambitious commitments. We call them the five commitments around addressing health inequity. um, One of which is a direct commitment to invest $150 million in grants to accelerate disease awareness through education. 
advocacy and access um, to address health disparities. And to date, we've granted $67 million um, through 238 grants. We've impacted over 10 million patients, so we'll continue to advance that commitment. We also are focused on increasing clinical trial diversity. We did make a commitment um, that by 2025, we wanted to make sure in the U.S., that we had a goal of 25% of our clinical trials being in highly diverse communities. So we surpassed that goal by 2022 with 59% of active US clinical trials being located in highly diverse uh, communities. We also uh, made a commitment, our third one is around employee giving, and that's to make sure that we put in place a two to one match for the US and Puerto Rico employees that donate to organizations that fight social, um, social inequality and that fight for social justice. We made a commitment to ensure by 2025 that we were spending $1 billion a year with diverse suppliers. And again, we achieved that um, by 2022, but we will keep that commitment going. And then we also made a commitment to achieve gender parity for our global executives and to double our um, US representation of black executives and Hispanic Latino executives by 2022. And so um, those are the things that we're focused on as an organization, and I help to advance that work. Wow, that's that's really impressive and incredible. So if you were to give somebody advice who was interested in getting into the pharmaceutical space in any capacity, what advice would you give that person? Wow, I, I think that's a, that's a great question. I, I would give a person who's starting their career in any industry is choose a career that allows you to focus on something that you're deeply passionate about. Because when you're passionate about your work, it doesn't feel like work. When you're passionate about it, you give it your all and you, you, have, you have a lot of uh, satisfaction in the work. But for someone who wants to enter into the pharmaceutical industry, you know, I think it would depend on where they sit in their careers. The beauty of the pharmaceutical industry, Chase, is that you can do anything. If you're a scientist and you wanna get into drug development, that's certainly an option. If you're a PR professional and a communications uh, professional, you can do that in the pharmaceutical industry. If you're a lawyer like me and you want to practice law for a pharmaceutical company or in the industry, that's an option too. You can do marketing. You can do sales. You can do advocacy. You can do policy. There really is so much to do in the pharmaceutical industry. So my suggestion to anybody starting out is to do your homework about the companies. Understand their vision, their mission. Understand the true north of the company, the culture, and how people feel about the company, and allow that to dictate where you choose to focus your efforts in selecting a company that you want to work for. I'm curious to know how your specific role was impacted by the by the pandemic. What was that like for you? So interestingly enough, I actually joined Bristol Air Squib um, during the pandemic. I joined as the senior vice president and head of U.S. oncology, and my role in that capacity was to lead our U.S. oncology organization on the commercial side. And I chose to switch into this role about seven months ago. But the way that the pandemic affected my job, I think initially, um, when at the start of COVID, we were all watching to see. Um, whether or not the pharma industry was inelastic, if it was going to be impacted by COVID. Um, and I think initially it was not impacted um, like many other industries were to the extent, but certainly we noticed that patients just weren't getting screened. And as a result of that, that created a concern that people weren't getting diagnosed with conditions, oncology, you know, cancer early enough and that their diagnosis would come later. And then obviously, you know, their outcomes could be impaired. 
And we started to see patients getting back into the office, screenings are back up um, for the for the for the most part to pre-pandemic levels. Offices are starting to get back to um, capacity or the ability to handle the capacity that they had pre-pandemic. I think the biggest learning for me as a professional during the pandemic was quite frankly the need to focus on team. It was an incredibly hard time for everyone. Being at home, um, being isolated, it's hard to develop one's career when you can't be in the office and see people. And then you have the flip side of when it was time to come back into the office, um, people struggling to, to establish a normal, a new normal in their lives that allowed them to get back into the office it was a hard time. And so I think as a leader, the, the most important um, or the most valuable thing I could offer to my colleagues, my peers, and people who worked in my team was support because they needed it then. And I think that people still need support because we're still readjusting. We're adjusting to a new normal coming out of COVID. Hmm. So obviously there are a lot of major players in the pharmaceutical space. I'm curious to know what makes Bristol-Myers Squibb different from some of the other players. Well, I can certainly share what make what I think it's a special place to be. Um, what I love about BMS is that it's a purpose-driven organization. We are deeply focused on the patients and our commitment to improving the lives of the patients and the communities that we serve globally. Um, one of the reasons why I, I, I love working for Giovanni Caforio and what I admire about him um, it's it's beyond what I learn every day, but it's the fact that he is always so focused on what is in the best interest of the patients that we serve. And that makes for a very pleasant environment and a culture um, that people enjoy because we're all galvanized around one common interest, and that's to help patients. I think also, I really do appreciate the company's value of inclusion. And it's imperative to bring innovative medicines to patients. And that imperative must, and it does require a workforce with diverse experiences and, and personal backgrounds that reflect the patients and the communities we serve. It requires diversity in clinical trials to ensure that our research reflects the, the unique needs of all of our patients. And the fact that the company is so focused on the patient, all of the patients, irrespective of race, gender, ethnicity, religion, that is what makes it a very, very special place to me. Um, I also love the fact that it's a company that is very agile. BMS has a long track record of reinventing, uh, reinventing itself, no matter what happens with, and I think this goes to the question that you asked earlier, no matter what happens with the external environment or even the internal environment, this organization has a history of being able to read the tea leaves and to pivot in a powerful way that has learned, has really led to long-term success. And, and I think those are the things that make it a really, really special, special place to be. Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Action and Ambition podcast. I certainly hope you'll come back and join us again after some time passes and keep us updated as to how things are going. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Chase. Be well. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Action and Ambition with your host, Andrew Metal. Please leave a review and subscribe and go to andrewmetal.com for all the exclusive lessons, behind-the-scenes footage, and video content of the show. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube at Action and Ambition, and we'll see you on the next episode.